Good morning. Welcome to our second day of the convocation on who needs theology. For those of you that were able to be here yesterday, we, of course, heard from Dean Heath, but we also heard from lay people in various professions. And so it seemed important to us to now turn to pastors and ask the same same kind of question about who needs theology and how they think about theology in their work. The moderator for our uh, panel is what I affectionately call the Waldo of this convocation and pastor school. Bishop Carter is everywhere, always. He introduced uh, (laughs) Dean Heath and is involved in the seminar explaining the general conference, which of course requires a lot of explaining sometimes. Uh, But Bishop Carter is the resident bishop of Florida and is a very thoughtful pastor and person who who both uh, supports and encourages pastors in their work. And so I felt like he was he was really an ideal person to guide this conversation. Our, our panelists are um, Matt Cook, who is the only person on the panel who's not from Duke Divinity School as a graduate um, and is also the only one who's not United Methodist. So if there's one not like the other, it's <laughs> my friend Matt Cook. Matt is the pastor of First Baptist Church of Wilmington, North Carolina, which is in downtown. He was telling me that both he and his, both the church campuses there are safe, but the concerns, of course, are the ongoing flooding and the continued devastation there. So we will we will be praying for your community, Matt. Matt's a Cooperative Baptist pastor. He was the national moderator for the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship in the previous year uh, and is a several times graduate of Baylor has just been in North Carolina for a few years. Then David Hockett is currently the pastor at Boone United Methodist. He's been for uh, the previous quadrennium, I guess, the chair of the Order of Elders for the Western North Carolina Conference. He's pastored a number of churches in Western North Carolina and has really uh, been a key sort of guide for the Divinity School as we've thought about continuing education for pastors for these last four years in his role with the Western North Carolina Conference. He's taught in course of study and lots of other things. Sarah Howell is uh, what we like to say around here, a double dookie, Duke undergrad and grad. Sarah and my oldest son are our friends, and so there's probably nobody on the panel that I actually respect more than Sarah in terms of what I've witnessed in her growing up as a minister. She's now an associate minister at Centenary United Methodist in Winston-Salem and leads both worship and the community life for the Roots Revival and does many other things, including leading a trip of church members to Haiti this weekend. So we will pray for you, Sarah, and for the obviously for the people in Haiti. Um, and so this is her first appointment, actually, as uh, in the conference post-graduation. And then Donna Banks, um, who has been a colleague of mine at the Divinity School during her very brief tenure as the director of student life at the Divinity School before she was snatched up by the conference and made a district superintendent. I've never really known anyone who wanted to be a district superintendent. 
but um, Donna, and then now is the lead pastor of the St. Francis uh, United Methodist Church in, in the Cary area. Donna had a life before her career in ministry as a chemist, so she's been on, on all sides of this who needs theology question. I'm very glad that these pastors are here to reflect with us, and thank you again, Bishop Carter, for leading the conversation. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, like many of our churches, there are a few empty seats, uh, and if you would like to come a little closer, you can. I thought that was wonderful how Brian led us last night in the chapel, but wonderful to see you here. Uh, and as I reflected on this um, logo before us and the question, uh, who needs theology, uh, I was uh, reminded of my time here uh, and how the, uh, the faculty taught us to answer this question, to begin to frame the question. And uh, I was led back to a prayer uh, that was written by Tom Langford, who was uh, a dean during a portion of my time here. And, and for me, it's uh, a wonderful prayer that uh, reflects or in, in a way answers the question, uh, who needs theology? So invite us uh, to pray and uh, these are his, the words of Dean Langford. O oh God, your intention to give exceeds our readiness to receive. Your boundless love is restricted by our small vessels. Your generosity far exceeds our responding reception. Your richness is restrained by our poverty of expectation. Your expansiveness is channeled through our small hearts. Enlarge our capacity. Increase our receptivity. Open us to your full life. Make us more able to receive your generous grace. Amen. Well, we welcome you into this conversation with these four uh, wonderful practitioners uh, and pastors. And we have questions that are really doorways into, uh, into framing this question, who needs theology? And I hope as you sit there, as you listen, you're also uh, uh, in the same way responding out of your own context. Uh, and so I'll begin um, with the question, uh, and anyone can kind of jump in. Uh, and the question is, as a pastor, how are you also a theologian? Uh, said another way, how does the God question shape uh, your practice of leading people in worship and The God question leads, for me, every question that I may ask uh, in my congregation. Um, I was here a couple of years ago, and I heard Marilyn Robinson say, I am not a novelist who's a Christian. I'm a Christian who happens to be a novelist. And that changed for me. That, that flipped the switch for me to begin to think about how do we help our congregations think that way about their roles who they are within the context of their lives together. And what that, when that happened for me as I was um, 
dealing with my call to ministry was John 15, 5. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. And I know I languished there for a good six months trying to realize, God, I can do nothing without you. Nothing that's worth doing without you. So I believe my, for me, I help my congregation to interpret theology in their lives. Uh, helping them to see their lives from a theological perspective. Helping them to see their work uh, as a part of God's plan in their life. Uh, it helps them to make sense of the world. It helps them to make sense of their purpose. And then to go out and do that, in, uh, to be obedient and to love uh, in the world around them. So I see myself as kind of interpreting that for them. Um, and basically, none of that happens outside of relationship. I can stand up all every Sunday morning and talk and talk about this and talk about theology, which I do. But if I don't have a relationship with them to be able to speak into their lives, none of this will make sense. And I've learned from one's perspective is that I no longer tell them. I no longer try to fix it. I've learned to ask really good questions to allow them to figure it out. So I believe I'm an interpreter of theology for them from the perspective of a pastor in their lives. I think one thing, if you think about it from the perspective of going into your work and taking God with you into your work and being able to look around and say, hmm, there's no other people of color at my work. Or how are we treating women at my work? How is my work affecting the environment? Those are the kind of questions that you want them to be able to go and use theology where they are in their workplace. Um, I know for me, and again, this is my first appointment. I'm four years into full-time ministry, so I'm still learning all of this. Um, Figuring out how to be a theologian in the church has been uh, a challenge, but also a great joy. Seminary is a particular kind of setting for doing theology, uh, and the church is not seminary. And so a lot of what I have had to learn is how to uh, interpret theology to a congregation. And some of what I try to think about is the way that Jesus did theology, which was he asked questions and he told stories. And I very quickly learned in my church that just telling somebody why something they're doing is wrong theologically is not a great way to do anything. Um, and so I've tried to shift to saying to asking questions about why people have this concept of God that they do. Um, I feel like I've become more theologically hospitable since I got out of seminary and understanding and appreciating different ways of conceptualizing God, but I've also become even more acutely aware of how the way that we perceive God impacts our entire lives. And um, I just see in the church that a lot of times our idea of God is attached to a particular way of worshiping, or a way of thinking about church, or even a particular pastor. And so to um, gently interrogate those things uh, can be freeing for church members, but allowing them to do the work, um, to, to bring it to them, to confront, but also to let them get there themselves. Um, because you know, if, if I'm doing all the theological heavy lifting, I'm not doing my job as a pastor and a teacher. Um, and I believe that Everyone is capable of doing and living theology. Um, and so trying to find ways to equip and empower people to do 
that themselves is really hard, but, uh, but it's a great joy when you see people uh, make that breakthrough and come to know God in, in new ways because of that. So similar to that, um, I think about um, quite often what is the story that we as a church, my, my church in particular, but what is the story that we're living and telling to our community? And um, is it a story that um, you can kind of pick up just by breathing the air that's around you? Um, kind of the cultural narrative um, that we all kind of uh, inhabit? Um, that has some kind of sometimes Christian veneer over it still in the South, but not always. Um, so to, in part, I, when I think about doing theology in the church, is trying to help our congregation think about the narrative that is shaping their life together. Um, and how they're inhabiting that narrative and how it's shaping the way that they live and talk and engage the world. Um, and, and the bottom line is, are we telling the, the story of Jesus? Are we, are we relating the, the narrative of the gospel and the kingdom? Um, the other thing that I think thinking about theology, for, for me at least in part, does, uh, and being reminded that I am a pastoral theologian, is that um, it, it can help us avoid ministry being principally uh, a functional task. And in other words, um, ministry being defined primarily by a set of skills uh, that you acquire through training, education, however you want to think about it. And certainly skills are, are important. I'm not suggesting that. But um, I think when ministry becomes principally functional, in other words, it's, um, it's uh, results driven in the sense that it's not... Not, I don't talk about fruitfulness, but I'm talking about sort of um, a results-driven, functional, pragmatic approach to ministry. It can devolve into idolatry fairly quickly because it becomes about me and my cleverness, my ability and my talent, my skill, and uh, the hard work of the people around me rather than about something that grows out of a deep abiding, back to your point, uh, in Christ. And... Um, and I think theology is about that as much as it is about anything. Is it how do we help this community that we're a part of abide in deep ways in, in Christ? I resonate very strongly with that. Um, so the first church that I've, I've pastored about 20 years now, and the first church that I pastored was in a small town in Texas, about 1,400. And the biggest change that I've watched since I first started pastoring 20 years ago up until today, and some of that's the context in which I pastor now, is the shift away from kind of a common way of seeing the world and a common way of seeing themselves to a tremendous amount of diversity. And that notion of a story, I think, is, is one that um, has departed culturally. And that makes it very interesting for us as pastors to be um, friends shepherds, guides in the midst of that process of helping people understand all the things of life that require truth from how they see themselves vocationally to the way they think about life and death issues for themselves, for the people that they love, all the myriad of things in which maybe the culture used to tell them how to think and believe and behave, but, but, but doesn't anymore. 
or perhaps tries to, but does so in such a diverse set of ways. Um, and that's, that's fun. That's dynamic. That's, for me as a pastor, that, that lights me up, getting that opportunity. It's also very difficult because you're constantly having to, to evaluate. You're constantly having to figure out where they are on kind of the arc or where they are on their journey towards Christ life. Thanks to each of you. You know, as I was thinking about this question, I was thinking also about the area that I serve in and especially about many of the uh, younger clergy who were coming into ministry. And my sense is that when I was uh, at a place like this, um, a lot of the theological task was sort of deconstructing a conception of God I already had, which came from a church culture, and some of that was kind of reacting to or rejecting fundamentalism. Uh, and I think a lot of people my age, sort of boomers, uh, that's kind of our default. You know, we think uh, the world is reacting to a church culture. The world is rejecting fundamentalism. My sense with a lot of, uh, I'm talking about people in their 20s and 30s, is that uh, that's, those are not the questions they are coming to in their own theological past. Uh, they're really trying to construct something. Maybe they're trying to gather up fragments. Uh, and I think, and this relates to some of what Dean Heath said yesterday, I think uh, the, the mission going forward uh, is going to be around uh, integration of theology with spiritual formation, integration of theology with community organization. Uh, to me, that's very exciting, but uh, really not something most theological schools prepare us for because I think a lot of the faculty also have a default, not to stereotype them all, but uh, they have a default of, uh, here's what I want to deconstruct. Uh, and this is my role in your life. And many of us went into ministry to try to do the same thing. Sarah was talking about that. You're wiser than I was at that stage. Uh, but... Uh, uh, to go forward, uh, a next question, and we've been through crisis. Matt's area, Wilmington area is flooded. Uh, parts of Florida were flooded. Uh, Eastern North Carolina is in our prayers. Uh, many towns, principal, communities have been uh, devastated by the storms. Uh, which leads to our thinking about how we lead uh, in a time of change or crisis. Uh, or a major decision that a church or community faces. And so what I wanted to ask uh, each of you, maybe we'll start with Matt and come back this way, is um, how has your theological formation uh, guided you to kind of create conditions for the church to be a different kind of community or a faithful kind of witness? I suppose I should talk about a hurricane since we just came through one, but but uh, I'm, I still that's still very fresh. And so immediately when we talked about that being a possible question for us to consider today, the, the first thing that came to mind was something that happened um, recently in the life of our church. Um, we are as a church, we're we're trying to do what we're calling a, a one year mission trip into our community right now. Um, and uh, there's a Sunday school class of young adults that made a commitment to partner with an African-American, predominantly African-American congregation in our city to go into to, uh, an area of town that none of them live in that is disadvantaged economically. It's very different than what they're used to socioeconomically. And they were there 
all morning long about a month ago, um, building relationships, um, laughing, playing, dancing, having a good time, um, um, fixing food. Ten minutes after they left, after they packed up and left, um, five men came in and uh, like it was drug-related. Four people were shot. One of them was killed. And when my phone began to ring that Saturday afternoon, um, the first thing that I heard, which is what you would expect, I mean, there was this adrenaline rush and all of the people that had been there. None of them were ever in harm's way, at least in terms of no bullets were flying while they were there. And so I went to that class the next morning not knowing what I was going to experience. Was it, was it going to be... Um, was fear going to predominate? Was, was a wall going to go up? And was able to be in the midst of a conversation. And I, and I can't take much credit for it at all. Honestly, I, I'm, I'm very grateful for the fact that there were people in that room who were already framing it in a Christ-like way. They were thinking about it logically. They were thinking about it. These, these aren't just people in our community, these are our brothers and sisters. And, and the fear that they experience on an ongoing basis and the problems that they deal with, we have to think of them as our problems. And for me, if we didn't have a way to think about it and talk about it in those terms, um, that could have been very, very different. Um, that very traumatic moment for about 20 people could have turned into something that um, set them at a distance from people that they not only had an opportunity to make an impact in their lives, but the people they encountered had an opportunity to make an impact in our lives as well. So there's a, a wonderful moment of how a biblical narrative and how thinking theologically made an impact in our country. Right. Yeah, so we, um, you, uh, about 15 years ago, Boone Methodist moved. Uh, they originally located close to Appalachian State University's campus. They moved. Um, principally for space, um, a little bit away from campus, about a mile or so. Um, they were located on King Street originally. Um, about two and a half years ago, to about three years ago, uh, the church decided that it needed a presence back on King Street. Uh, that there was a, that that community, um, that was a missing piece. And um, so Luke Edwards, who is a pastor on our staff, and uh, was our missions pastor at that point in time, um, uh, decided to start uh, what has become a fresh expression um, of, of church on King Street. And uh, they meet in Boone Saloon, and they um, have a couple of different other small group gatherings. Um, out of that conversation and the work that Luke has been doing there, um, and because of a relationship of, with a young man who was actually a member of Boone United Methodist Church uh, and had been uh, had, had done a, uh, served a prison sentence, um, they decided that they would go um, uh, on to the to the county jail and begin a ministry, uh, just see if there was something that they could do in the county jail. And um, they've been doing that about a year and a half. Um, where they go in Wednesday mornings and they, um, they do prayer, Bible study, worship, uh, principally with the male inmates of the jail. Out of that conversation uh, and the relationships that they've been building with these young men, mostly young men, um, they began to discern that one of the, and this is not 
probably news to many, many of you, most of you. Um, one of the great challenges for someone who has been incarcerated is, um, is how do you build a life after that? Right? Like there, you are, um, you have um, limited access to employment. Uh, you have not least of which is the stigma of having been in prison or jail. Um, you have broken, uh, probably quite often broken relationships with family or friends, or if there was a sort of support uh, structure around this person, it, it quite often is fractured after they've been in prison. And so how do we, um, how might we as church imagine surrounding these young men and a few young women with a community that then helps them to to sort of re-enter life in a way that they can flourish again. And so I have to tell you, we have we don't have all the answers to that, and we're still just sort of stumbling our way into it, trying to, to figure figure it out. But um, to me, that's um, as, as as that church has thought about theologically what it means to be the church. Um, more and more, they're they're coming to terms with the idea that it's about forming relationships. Um, it isn't about simply writing checks or handing clothes, you know, a clean set of clothes to a guy when he gets out of jail. Or It's about really welcoming them into your house, walking alongside them, uh, being the friends and the support that they need. The long term of someone, you know, as Eugene Peterson calls it, it's that long obedience in the same direction, walking with someone. Um, as they uh, as they grow in the knowledge and love of Christ, uh, and they put their life back together, and they uh, find a way to be a meaningful part of a society that, quite frankly, um, often just doesn't really care about. Um, and so I, I take again no credit for that. It's just really wonderful lay people in Luke's uh, leadership um, that have helped them sort of take a step back, think biblically, theologically about what might it mean to be the church. For this part of our population, um, that quite often is just written off. Uh, well, at my church, we have been uh, trying to shape the, our imagination around missions in different ways. Um, I serve a large downtown congregation in Salem, and uh, my church has a long history of creating and supporting a lot of the social services that are in the city now. Uh, so some decades ago, the major homeless shelter in town, crisis control ministries, various things were started by members of our church. So they're very proud of that heritage. Uh, But some of what happened when those institutions were built was that homeless people were no longer sleeping in the auditorium, they were sleeping in the shelters. Um, And we sort of professionalized missions and service. And so we've been trying to figure out a way to relationally reconnect church members with um, people who look different from them, people who are vulnerable in our city. One of the ways we have done that is that a couple years ago, a number of downtown churches came together because we realized that our homeless shelters during the winter were full and there were many, many people who were out on the streets in dangerously cold conditions. So we started a winter overflow shelter that had happened in the past but not for several years uh, and that's been a number of years that's been going on, and our relationship with it has grown over time. Um, and there was there's one particular crisis point in that that I can point to um, that was instructive for us around 
uh, how we engage the community. We had a church member who was a volunteer with the Overflow Shelter, and um, one of the guests was severely mentally ill and had been known to be violent when he um, was, was off his medication. He was off his medication. And he attacked this church member with a knife. And um, if not for the intervention of another guest, this man very well may have been killed. And for that to happen suddenly, you know, it brought up all of this fear and concern of, should we even be involved in this? I can't volunteer because I'm afraid. And I understood a lot of that, but it was also incredible to see some of the people who said, okay, this shows us that the need is even greater than we realized. And we need to step up, and we need to find ways to, um, to get mental health care for the folks that are on the streets. Our, our homeless population has extremely high rates of severe, severe mental illness. And so that's led to a broader community conversation about how to engage mental health both in the church and within our own congregation and then with our neighbors downtown. Um, but I've seen this engagement with the overflow shelter sort of uh, get its claws into our congregation in a good way. We uh, have a building that our church owns that's across the street from the church. And for years and years, it's been leased out to businesses, and you know, we hire a property manager to deal with it, and it, we're just landlords, basically. Um, but over the last year, I guess actually last winter, um, we had a couple tenants that had moved out, and there was just some space sitting there. And they, they needed a space for check-in for the overflow shelter. So we decided to host that. Um, and, and that was really interesting. It started this shift in thinking of, should the church be in the landlord business, or do we need to be focusing our energy on missions and ministry? Um, and last overflow season, we lived in a very difficult tension because we still had tenants in this building, some of whom were not thrilled that we were bringing 100 homeless people in every night for four months. Um, but the kinds of conversations that came up in that were, what does it mean to be Christ-like in this situation? And, you know, the cheesy, what would Jesus do? But it, it was a real question that um, there was a lot of anxiety around some of, you know, the practical, legal things that I often felt like got in the way of, of the theology and of living out our mission. And so we had to negotiate around that. And over the last year, our trustees have decided to no, not renew any of the leases in that building. So our last tenant will be out in January. Um, and we're converting that whole building over to missional space. So we'll be hosting the Overflow Shelter again this year. We have a, um, a ministry that does a food pantry and financial assistance that is now in that building. Our backpack ministry is in that building. Um, the, a free clinic from another Methodist church came in temporarily over the summer while they were doing asbestos abatement, and then they decided to stay, so they're still there. And uh, actually, out of the overflow shelter last year came um, some work, deeper work with some of the folks who were not in housing by the time the season ended, and so we have been hosting office space for um, folks that are doing that deeper relational sort of casework and housing uh, stuff. So it's been surprising and incredible to see the church move in that direction, to imagine space differently. Um, And I don't think the whole congregation even realizes what we're doing or has caught up to that yet, but um, we're finding that the the people who are closest to it and engaged in that process, they are being transformed in their missional imagination, and, and I think it's starting to sort of trickle through the rest of the congregation.
Interesting thing, I, I am in suburbia, USA. I'm in a place where we don't see homeless people, we don't see drug, drugs, we don't see anything, and we like it that way. <laughs> anything that's happening in our homes, anything that's happening in our lives, we really don't want anybody to know. And so we, for me, I have been thinking about it from the standpoint of if everything's theological, then if it's not discussed in church, it shouldn't be discussed at all. Because we are in a place where we don't want to have these discussions. We don't want anybody to know how we feel. We don't want to, quote unquote, um, offend anyone with uh, the, our, our thoughts. Um, because we, you know, that would cause us to not be, somehow compromise our community in some way. So what we've been doing is bringing the issues up. Bringing up the issues that are affecting life and community, that are affecting the world, that are affecting us. Um, I, when I got there, I, this is my second year of my appointment here at St. Francis, and we wanted to do racial taboo. I don't know if anyone of you have heard, just go racialtaboo.com. The thing about racial taboo, you have to bring in um, a church different from yourself, whatever, if it's an African-American, Korean, African, whatever that church is, or to have some conversations about race. I had a friend of mine who has a church in Cary, and I called him up and I said, Pastor Ken, would you join us in this discussion? He said, you know, I'm really tired of having that discussion. I'll give you two sessions. Okay, I understand that. I completely understand that. And so I've, been, I've gotten out in the community, I've met some people, and I went to uh, a woman who's running our Dorcas ministry, which is the ministries in the community. Um, and I said, you know, I'm looking for some people that, to have a discussion with. And she says, exactly what she said, what's in it for us? I understand that completely. Because we talk a lot. We do little. Or we talk, or we do until we get bored and we move on to something else. So this little group of people, and I have stepped away for it because I get to remind my congregation of race every time I stand in the pulpit. And I'm not the first African-American pastor there. Leonard, uh, Bishop Leonard Fairley, I'm following him at St. Francis. Uh, but this group of people have met for the last eight months together to form relationship together, to eat in each other's homes together, to begin to really understand what it is that God may be calling us to. And this group of people decided that we're going to be a part of a solution to eradicate racism. I have nothing to do with that, which is great. They're empowered to do so. And so we'll have that, finally, we'll have that event on January 15th, uh, where we'll invite the community to come in. I've been working with pastors to talk about that ever since the shootings, ever since what's been happening with police. And my fellow pastors said to me, as we've said, we need to have some discussion about this among ourselves. And they said to me, I'm sorry, we can't have this discussion with our congregations because we haven't come to terms with it. It's like, really? So we're having to have these discussions in order to have, begin to 
know each other, begin to see each other from a different perspective and begin to, uh, to talk about it uh, in order that we can talk to our congregation. So that's kind of been happening in the last year. Just Sunday, though, we started talking about food and faith. We're using Norman Wordsworth's book on food and faith to talk theologically about food. We have somehow abdicated our responsibility, uh, the commodification of food and this fast food industry and the industrialization of processing food. We've kind of forgotten how that connects us to the communion table, to Eucharist. But we theologically have those discussions. We pray a lot, and we do opportunities when we don't know what to do. We have prayer time. You know, for a suburban church, it's hard to figure out what are you called to do. And so we make space, make space to have times of prayer. Uh, we will have a prayer on, at 7 o'clock a week from Tuesday after the election to pray about the election. So that we can begin to say, okay, what, what is God maybe calling us to do? Just to begin to, to make space. So I think... You know, we also host the Unity Dialogue. So we're having the discussions in church that we can theologically offer what they mean and have both sides of the discussion so that people don't feel polarized in some way. So I feel that that's how we are doing that, is to continue to have discussion in order that God can lead us to what God is calling us. Um, there's a great deal of wisdom in, this, in these four persons. Uh, amen. And, uh, you know, as I was listening, that's, uh, that's a part of what we're about, that uh, uh, in the so-called ordinary practice of ministry, uh, actually, we are theologians. We are, we used to laugh about that when I was in school, that how am I a theologian? Uh, but for the people you serve, you, you, you do fulfill that role. Uh, just a couple of thoughts I've reflected on underneath this as I was listening. Uh, some of you know Russ Moxley, who... Uh, has done work with um, many of many of us in leadership. Uh, early in ministry, he was a part of uh, Christ Church in Greensboro, where I served. Was their family was a member of that church, and he was doing some leadership work with us. Uh, and he asked the question. He said, "A critical question is, uh, do I think I can change my organization?" The leadership question: Do I think I can change my organization? Uh, and he said, if, the, if you answer that uh, no, he said, it's likely that you will use your role for your own self. Uh, and if you answer that question yes, it's likely that you will use your role and your authority for the common good. And I realized I've known people in every conceivable role in business, politics, the church, the role doesn't matter, but individuals would answer that question in different ways. Some people thought, I can't change this community. And others thought, with God's grace and power, I can. Uh, I also am often around clergy who uh, verbally or, or non-verbally somehow send out a signal, I don't have much power. I don't have much authority. Uh, I can't do much in this situation. Uh, and my response over time has been, uh, you're the only person in your community who gets to stand up every week for 20 or 30 minutes and people listen to you talk. 
Uh, and you change a community, you're talking about narrative and story, you change a community by the stories you tell, by the conversations you host, uh, and by what you ignore, or sometimes what you critique. Uh, it's the image really, uh, thinking of a river or the mountains, is you, a, a leader, a pastor, you step into the stream and you change centenary. You change St. Francis by just stepping in the stream. It alters, it alters the course of their life. Uh, that's a powerful thing, and it really uh, is all about saying what you do is really important. Um, the question, um, sort of who needs theology in relation to how a community faces a crisis or a decision, uh, I briefly kind of reflected on that in terms of my own role and the denomination that I'm a part of and the, and the conversation around LGBTQ persons and that community. And I think I've... Um, the question, how's my theological formation guided me in this? It's a work in progress, but uh, for me, I've, I think I have definitely tried to reframe the conversation around uh, the grace of God uh, and the God's provenient grace. Uh, every person is created in God's image, every person. Uh, we believe that. Nothing can ever take that away. God's justifying grace on the cross of Jesus that is apart from our merits, apart from our righteousness, apart from our goodness. We're, we're all on level ground there. Uh, where, where we diverge is our understanding of sanctifying grace. Last night in chapel, last hymn we sang was a hymn about sanctifying grace. Uh, and there are conceptions of sanctifying grace that are more social, and there are concep- conceptions of sanctifying grace that are more personal, uh, one goes toward uh, social justice, one goes toward conceptions of purity, and uh, that has to do with sacred space. And that's where we diverge, and yet this is a conversation about the grace of God, which again is God's gift to us. Uh, and I think um, that, that came from those theology classes I had here. You know, Dr. Cushman, Dr. Langford, Dr. Steinmetz, uh, those sorts of persons, uh, the history of the church and how the church had struggled uh, to understand grace. Uh, and I would say that, um, you know, that I often sense myself in some dissonance with my friends on the left who, um, who tend to want to talk about this solely in terms of justice and my friends on the right, excuse me for the labels, who tend to want to talk about it solely in terms of judgment. Uh, and, uh, and somehow trying to reframe this around the journey we're on in the grace of God. Uh, and I think we all are searching for ways, uh, and often a crisis uh, is, the, is the cliche, but it is the opportunity. Uh, I think people are most open to listening to us. Uh, and uh, it may be out of fear, it, you know, it, sometimes that comes up in all of us, and yet they're most open to us. We're, we're most adaptable to change uh, when there's a crisis. Uh, to move on to another question, this is uh, sort of relates to your own formation and how you lead and who you are, but uh, if each of you, uh, maybe we'll start with Sarah, 
Uh, just reflect on one of your sort of heroes or saints in the church, uh, and then maybe how does that person uh, in the church you're in in particular, how does their presence, either living or in memory, continue to influence the gathered community? Uh, well, the person that I thought of um, is Judy, and Judy was on our staff at church for a long time and a member for even longer. She was an administrative assistant, and she ran a bookstore gift shop that we have for the, the Profits Benefit Mission. And she is, she was as Southern as you could get, and as sweet as you could get, and as sassy as you could get. Mm-hmm. And she just always had this presence of joy, and um, that, that was just uplifting to the whole staff. She passed away last January after a long battle with stomach cancer. Um, and I feel like I learned so much from her because, for a, lot, for a number of reasons. One, I mean, she was very, what I might call old school in terms of her approach to church, and um, again, really Southern. And yet, whenever something new or different came up, instead of being defensive or fearful, she was just excited and wanted to learn more. Even if she didn't quite understand it, she was just so ready to find out why, why this was coming up and what she had to learn from it. And, and that's not the MO of most of my church members, so it was just a gift to have her um, surprise. <laughs> it was a gift to have that kind of a response. Um, Judy also had a, a, a gift for naming uh, the gifts and graces that people had in a way that no one else would ever phrase it. She would see something in another person that would not be in your normal, it would not be on your resume, it would not be your list of like things you're good at, but something profoundly spiritual. Um, and things that maybe you weren't even aware of in yourself. Um, she always told me that I was a mystic, which I still think is so weird, but also so wonderful. Um, but it was those kinds of things that she would call out and name in people. Um, and she also, even though she took church very seriously and faith very seriously, she held it very lightly in terms of humor. Uh, one thing that we still talk about a lot, uh, at one point our sort of vision statement for the church was, go, the kingdom of God is at your doorstep. So go was our, in our logo, the big go. And normally around the edge we'd have like the church name. Um, Judy printed out an alternative logo and put it on her door and it said, go away. Um, she really wanted one that said go to hell but we decided that might not um, that might not work go over very well but I just I just loved that she was able to hold all of these different things together her her commitment to um, to tradition to the way she had always always experienced God but her openness to new things her love of people her uh, ability to call out gifts and others uh, and, and that still lingers. We still talk about her very fondly. Um, we feel her presence in, uh, on, on our hall of offices and in the church. Um, she led that, uh, that bookstore. She uh, developed a, sort of a core group of volunteers there that were very involved, not just there, but uh, they sort of expanded the reach of the missions of that, of that space because it had always just been the, the money that would go into missions. But she got them connected with a downtown school called the Winston-Salem Street School, which is an alternative high school for students who um, have dropped out or been kicked out of everywhere else, basically. 
and it's a Christian school, a nonprofit, and um, those volunteers continue to have a deep relationship with those teachers and those kids, um, supporting them relationally and in terms of presence and not just in terms of finances. So. Um, so lots of people come to mind over the past 22 or so years. Um, one in particular, I'll, I'll describe him, and I hope that all of you have had or will have this, this person, and I know you will, um, It's in your life. It's why we um, don't lock our doors of our offices and leave and never come back. Um, so Dale came to my, you know, when you move to a new appointment, I'm, I'm only 15 months or so at, at, at Boone, and when you new, move to a new appointment, <clears throat> excuse me, you have a list of of people who want to come by. You guys have, you know, they want to visit the new pastor. Um, and the longer you do this, the, the more, at least I have become skeptical of those who show up on the list first uh, because they may have an agenda. They may not, but they may. Um, sometimes it's a legitimate agenda. Sometimes it's not. But um, So Dell came by. Um, Dell's a couple years my senior um, he works for a Samaritan's Purse, so I'm immediately I'm, you know, I'm drawing conclusions uh, about Dale, and um, he needed to see me, so he comes by my office. I'd been there maybe two or three months, and we sat down. He introduced himself, told me a little bit about his family, and he said, "Well, the only agenda I have um, today is that um, I want to pray for you." And um, I was like, "Okay." <laughs> Um, and he said, no, seriously, brother. And he always calls me brother. Um, I, I want to pray for you. I, I want you to tell me. And he got out his, his journal and his pen. And he said, I, I need to know the things that I should pray about for you. And um, uh, so in every congregation, I've had that person. And it's been a different person in each congregation. Um, but the reason that um, I think about Dale is because, um, now there are a lot, a lot of other things about him that are wonderful. He asks great questions. He's, uh, he's deeply theological. Um, he sees things that other people miss. Um, sometimes in sermons, he'll, he'll, he'll send me a note after the sermon and he'll say something like, yeah, I caught this. I bet, I'm not sure others caught it, but I caught this little subtle thing you said. He'll want to talk about it. Um, and the reason... He is that way in part is because he is so deeply prayerful. And that deep life of prayer makes him just a wonderful theologian. Um, in some ways, a, a brighter, more gifted theologian than I am. Um, so uh, I think people like that, who not only give you the gift of just caring about you as a, a human being uh, and their pastor, um, but from whom you can learn. Because they are so deeply connected to God in ways that sometimes maybe we aren't. Um, and they have insight and wisdom that we should glean. Um, we're not the only theologians in the church, right? Thank God for that. Uh, sometimes there are much better theologians sitting in the pew. Um, and um, we really need to, to rely on them, tap into what they have to offer, and, and celebrate the gift of their life and their presence. It's funny that you say that because it's... It, Probably in all three of the congregations that I pastored, the, the saint that I would name is somebody that 
might not line up with me exactly in the way that I read scripture or the way that I think theologically. And yet I would say without hesitation there is God's present in them in a way that that not only blesses me, but blesses so many people, and that's obvious. And I I don't say this to denigrate our thinking theologically at all, but it also goes, I mean, maybe one part of thinking theologically is understanding there are limits to our thinking, even, or at least limits to our, our academic thinking. A guy that came immediately to mind uh, in my present context is a guy by the name of Gary. Um, um, I don't want to overplay our differences politically and theologically. We probably have some, um, and so I, I thought about that as you were speaking, but, but Gary is just a guy who is just genuinely authentic, and I, and I tend to gravitate towards people who, for them, the Christ life is joy, and they, there's no effort to it at all. That they just it's they they are who they are, and who they are blesses people. Um, Gary is Gary. About eleven years ago, was teaching a high school um, boys Sunday school class, and they started thinking about what they could do to make a difference. Um, and so, just kind of on a whim, they decided to show up downtown at our downtown campus as hand out sandwiches one Tuesday night. And there was a tremendous amount of gratitude. The homeless population in, in Wilmington is centered, a portion of them are centered close to us, and so we get the opportunity to rub elbows with them. And so they were there just to be a blessing and to build relationships. And those, those boys had such a powerful experience of it, they decided to come back. Now, Eleven years later, we, every Tuesday night, the whole church, turns out not the whole church, that's, that's a bit of an overstatement, but we, our church is open for people. What started off as a, a set of high school boys, feeding outside has become something that our church takes great joy in. And Gary w- was at the center of that and did it just by asking them questions. And, and, and he figures out ways... He's constantly at the place where our church intersects the community. So our, our church in recent years has been building relationships with people who are political refugees from Burma, Corinth, and um, quite a few of them in eastern North Carolina. Uh, they're attracted to the jobs that they can get. And Gary uh, befriended four high school boys and gets up and goes and picks them up at 5 a.m. and takes them to soccer practice because they don't have a car and they need to be able to get there. And then he got them, after they graduated, he got all four of them enrolled in community college. Um, and, it's, and there's nothing sanctimonious about it. There's nothing, you never get a sense of, you're not measuring up where Gary is concerned. It's, it's, you always are pulled into the orbit of good things that he does. And another wonderful blessing that he, that he bestows on me is he just treats me like a normal human being. Uh, he loves superhero movies, so he's always going to be there for the midnight showing of a superhero movie, and he always calls me up with such great excitement. Hey, you want to go to this? You know you're going to love. Who are you going to be? Team Cat, you know, Team Iron Man, who are you going to be? And for him, it's just, it's just being himself, so, and who he is blesses people. Thank you. Yeah. That person for me... Um, I'm in a church that will be 35 years old in January, and um, but we still have charter members. 
And so the person that stands out for me, I, I, it's funny that the men chose men and the women chose women. <laughs> but that is Mary Holloway. Mary Holloway is a charter member of St. Francis. Um, she is a person that if I need something done, I just go to Mary. Mary will organize it. Mary will put it together. She will bring the people there. And she's always willing to give of her time. Um, Mary was a librarian uh, for many years in the Wake County school system. And most recently, when we were thinking about an evangelism team and putting together people who would be shepherds to those who would come to the congregation and who would be there to be asked and greeters, and uh, those, you know, I, I could pick up the phone and say, Mary, would you consider it? So this is how Mary does her research. Mary goes to me, goes to the person who's been here before, done all of her research, and she's come up with the ideas, and she'll come back to me and says, this is what I found, this is where I think we need to be going. And so she's a wonderful uh, conversation partner that gives me some idea of what's happened in the past in the congregation, as well as someone who can willing to stand up and do what needs to be done. Over the summer, we were trying to figure out what to do with high school and middle school, uh, uh, Sunday school, because most of those things kind of happen at night or they're kind of marginal, or, I mean, sparse in the summertime. So she put together a Sunday school, uh, a way where youth could come in on Sunday morning and have a time of discussion and prayer and have a speaker. She set that all up herself and had that, make sure that happened. So if you go around our church, you'll probably hear that whatever's been started in certain places like our prayer and ministry, Mary got that started. And the biggest thing that Mary does, biggest gift, she always makes sure that there's someone coming after her. She's not the only person. She always makes sure that she already train someone and have someone who will come after her because she won't stay there long. She'll set it up, she'll move on, but she always has someone who's going to come after her. And she's the perfect example of someone who has been empowered, someone who knows how to train, and someone who knows how to prepare. And that's what we want to do within our congregation. Each our, have, our clerk, have our congregation and our people be able to do that in a real and well, as I was listening, uh, I remembered the phrase, uh, what's most uh, personal is most universal. I imagine that uh, many of you were listening and you were thinking about uh, people who've kind of come along your own path. And, uh, and th- then I was sort of making a connection. Uh, I know I'll, I'll be preaching on All Saints Sunday. And really this, com- this question, uh, I didn't think about it when, when I initially sort of was trying to frame this along. Dave, but uh, if I was thinking about, uh, well, how will this change the way I preach on All Saints uh, Sunday? Uh, and I think it will. Uh, and so, uh, but I thought about you also and uh, imagining that there are many people. So what I'd like to ask you to do, uh, you're going to need to say something out loud here. So I'd like just, if you would, uh, say the name of uh, a person who's been your... A, a saint in your experience. Just say their name out. Um, I thought about uh, a number of people along the way. Uh, they were more women, 
men than women. That's, that's, that's a corrective. I appreciate that. Uh, helps me imagine larger. Uh, but, uh, and, and I thought about different ones who sort of came along in a, a rural community like East Bend and a fluent sector of Charlotte and everywhere in between. Uh, one of the things I realized in listening was often these people came along uh, sort of at a time when I was maybe discouraged about the church and um, they just sort of God sent them to say, uh, yeah, th- this, is, uh, uh, this is real uh, and we do take this seriously. And I think I appreciate the insight that, yeah, it's not that uh, we come to a school, we be- makes us more holy. We're sent out to a church. We try to make the people more holy. That's kind of a linear transactional process. But, yeah, we get there. We realize there have been holy people there a long time. And sometimes there's a holy person there just kind of waiting and praying. uh, Maybe our next leader, our next pastor is going to take their spiritual life pretty seriously. As Brian was saying last night, they're going to take the incarnation pretty seriously, you know, and... uh, and so it really, uh, I have to say, as I listened, uh, really helped me to think differently about saints and maybe even how to, how to approach uh, that particular day in our church year, but for the purpose of uh, making people who are maybe more marginal, uh, maybe making them more visible uh, and telling their stories. So we've got time maybe for one, uh, perhaps Two more questions, uh, and I think this is kind of a fun question, um, and anyone can begin. Uh, what uh, what theological sources or authors sustain you, or have sustained you, uh, as you do this work of? Here we are at a seminary, and none of us are named. <laughs> theological sources. <laughs> um, this is going to, I don't want this to sound um, like the churchy answer. Um, it's going to sound, may, may sound like that. I really don't intend it to be. <clears throat> and in some ways it's obvious. Quite frankly, the longer I'm at this, uh, the more important uh, scripture is. Um, now I, I read a lot, um, you know, N.T. Wright, Walter Brueggemann, Eugene Peterson, Adi Boltz Weber. I mean, there are a number of people that I I read regularly. Um, but there's a way. It just seems like the longer I'm at this, the more. Not only um, when I, I started out, I read scripture because I sort of needed to and had to. Um, but now I read it because it just sort of I'm drawn there just out of sheer need um, for the task of, and some of that's because ministry has changed so much in 20 years of what I thought I was being trained for. Um, for those of you who've done this a while, um, it, we're not in the church we were trained to serve, right? And we were not in the cultural context that we, in which we thought many of us would be living out our, our ministry. And so just to be, to go back to what I said at the beginning, uh, to be connected to that story in a deep and meaningful way is just essential. Um, and I'm mindful of it more and more every day. 
and that that becomes sort of my primary vocabulary uh, as a way of talking about what it is we're about, not as a pastor, or as, but as just a follower of Jesus. I, I, I very much agree with you. Um, I can trace my story by Scripture. I can trace how I have intersected with Scripture. Um, you know, I think about uh, when I was discerning my call to ministry in Second Chronicles 20. Out of all the Scripture in the Bible, the one, Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Uh, you know, the Jeremiah 29 and the John 15, which I, that just every day resonates with me. Scripture does it every time. Um, I also, you know, Bonhoeffer is one of my favorite. Um, C.S. Lewis has a quote that has been, that stuck with me as it goes along with the John 15 that has continued to be something that I, I just reflect on and come back to. And I'm just, I brought it because I, I, I found it again. It's in a sermon somewhere. I had to go look for it. But it says, uh, give me all of you. I want so much of your time, so much of your talents, your money, and so much of your work. I want you, all of you. And I have come to torment and frustrate that natural man or woman, not just to torment, but to kill it. No half measure will do. I don't want to only prune a branch here and there. Rather, I want the whole tree Hand it over to me, the whole outfit, all of the desires, all the wants, all the wishes. Turn them over to me. Give me yourself. In exchange, I will give you myself. My will, and I shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. And so that, you know, we live live with so much theological material. And so letting scripture be primary and letting all the other voices kind of so this is the voice of mine today. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe different tomorrow. Well, y'all kind of threw out the trump card. So, yeah, the Bible. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's ubiquitous. He's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Bonhoeffer has also been a uh, huge influence on me. Uh, Henry Nowen is someone I go back to all the time. Um, his book, The Inner Voice of Love, I haven't read it, has changed me in many different times. Um, not to be a brown noser, but Elaine Heath's book, The Mystic Way of Evangelism, rearranged my thinking about sin and vocation and continues to be um, a narrative in my head in a lot of different ways. Um, Julian of Norwich is forever my favorite writer, and uh, I go back to her work a lot. Um, Poetry has become increasingly important to me uh, in my own sort of prayer life and also in my preaching and ministry. So Mary Oliver is wonderful. And then I recently got to know the work of a woman named Nayira Wahid. Her poetry is dark and Incredible. Um, I also, I feel like I have expanded my sense of like, what is a theological source? And uh, we have a Wednesday night worship service that incorporates secular music into the preaching moment. And so now, anytime I hear any song, I'm thinking about how could I connect this with scripture? What theological themes are there? 
without like baptizing the song and trying to make it Christian, but just realizing that God shows up everywhere, and I, I don't have to be listening to K-Love to hear something theological. Um, but, yeah, so, I and I feel like I have more and more um, been able to read outside of my tradition, and um, even outside of Christianity in terms of theology, and it's, it helps me um, to think about things differently. Um, another source is I uh, have a number of friends who are in 12-step recovery programs, and um, that approach to spirituality has been really helpful for me um, because I think that there's probably a lot more uh, faithful God talk that happens in church basements than church sanctuaries sometimes. And so I've been grateful for that community being a resource for me to learn. Um, as I was thinking about the question, I was thinking about kind of different parts of who I am. I, uh, when I need to take my humanity seriously, Anne Lamott has been a good conversation partner along the way. Find hope in the midst of my humanity. Uh, I, I, I would feel a bit remiss sitting in this place if I didn't say, if I wanted to, when I think about the church, if I didn't. Uh, Acknowledge the blessing that Stanley Harawas has been to me as a minister. Um, I read deeply of his work in seminary and, and go back to that uh, along the way. Um, I, um, I believe in the church deeply. And I, I, I like to think I would have done that without reading his work, but I certainly do it after. And then in my own calling, as I think about myself as a pastor, Eugene Peterson has been a real blessing. Um, he came to Baylor when I was a student and he was asked a question that I've, that I've gone back to again and again and again, because it, it very much caught me off guard. He was asked about how much he pays attention to um, issues around him. And, uh, and he said, I, I, I really try to limit myself and how much I do that, because I've discovered that it's not that each of those issues isn't important, but if I... That if I do that, I will constantly go chasing after the next issue. And I will neglect my calling to go deep. And as a person that pays a lot of attention to things that take place in the world around me, it was a really helpful and healthy reminder for what I think the pastoral calling is. That, that we've, we've been all around it this morning in terms of our grounding in Scripture and, the, and our theological story and... and, and uh, especially in light of some of the things that are taking place around us right now. I mean, the fact that we're having this con- conversation in the midst of, of a political election, I think it's good for us as pastors to be reminded that even with all the craziness happening around us, that, that we have a higher and deeper calling in the midst of even important moments that are taking place around us. It's been um, And I think uh, as I was reflecting uh, I tend to think a lot about this in context of my own life. Uh, I read things you know, when I was in my 20s uh, and then you know, lived a little a while and go back to things. I find myself kind of rereading things uh, increasingly. And, uh, and yet also realize that uh, as much as I appreciated the education I received, uh, uh, there were some blind spots that I had and there were some voices. Who were, uh, who were not present. But, uh, uh, and so one person who, who I just never read or encountered until the last few years was Leslie Newbigin. Uh And in terms of 
church, uh, we were not trained to serve, and and the U.S. as a as a quote missional context, as a, a post-Christian context. I just find Leslie Newbigin's writings uh, open secret, and uh, his commentary on John, the light has come, uh, just to be an amazing commentary, Gospel of John, uh, and then a book uh, I read. Uh, I think in a Christian education class here, uh, you know, uh, and it didn't mean a great deal to me, but I read it uh, again later, was uh, Vincent Donovan's Christianity Rediscovered, uh, about uh, a priest who goes to Africa to try to convert a tribe, uh, and how that gets reimagined, uh, how that, that mission gets kind of reimagined. And so I would say that uh, also uh, in, in the context we're in, uh, I've tried to read. So Florida, uh, part of Florida's history is that a uh, person like James Weldon Johnson is from Jacksonville and Howard Thurman is from Daytona. And so uh, rereading, again, some things I had read earlier, but in a more superficial way, but a book like Jesus and the Disinherited. Uh, trying to read that during Advent. So sometimes I will just see a, a season approaching and think, I want to read this. Um, Jürgen Moltmann is going to speak uh, in our conference in the winter, uh, which is pretty incredible. He's, I think, 90 years old. So uh, I'm, I'm starting to reread Crucified God. And so I just find that my reading is kind of more episodic. I would say it's more around seasons of the year and people whose paths I cross with and context. Uh, and also, I find that, uh, you know, with the kind of disappearance of bookstores, <laughs> which seems to be kind of epidemic, uh, uh, probably, and some of you are in this situation too, my, my own library is probably the best bookstore in the town where I live in. And so uh, if I'm going to read a book, I don't go to the bookstore and buy one. I just walk in there and think, what do, I, what do I need to read? What do I want to read? But uh, these persons do, do shape us. I'm uh, grateful for that. Uh, we have um, maybe about 10 minutes. Uh, open up to a couple of questions. Okay. If anyone has a kind of a question or a comment, uh, kind of a brief reflection, it'd be wonderful to have two or three of those uh, just on something you've heard from and if you would say your name, that would be great. I, I'm Ken Johnson. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask the panelists to direct their attention to who needs the S. Reminds me of people in the church who have certain stigmas and how you relate to that. And not to mention people outside the church. And I have in mind a particular stigma. The courtroom has declared some persons felons, felony conviction. You have some of those people in your pews. In the hierarchy, there, are, there is the effort uh, upon the part of some to uh, go into full-time ministry who suffer the past felony conviction. How do you relate to persons who suffer a stigma? I mentioned this particular one, but there are others. Thank you. I'm actually, the, the congregations in which I've pastored, and it just goes back to this whole conversation we have about who needs theology, and somebody made reference to, to prison ministry, and we have a 
We have a woman who got out of prison. Our church does ministry in the Hanover County. We've built relationships there and send teams there. And that ministry is integrated enough in the life of our church that that when somebody comes out of jail or prison, that, that we celebrate enough what takes place that I guess it destigmatizes in some way. So most recent case, there's a, there's a person who got out who was convicted of a sex crime. And if, if, there's this, if you have a modern-day leper, that's probably about as close as you can get because that's the, you know, that's the scarlet letter. And yet, church trusted that we would we'd take some safety issues seriously enough. You know, we, we're not naive about sin and brokenness, but that we believe that the power of the gospel is great enough to overcome that. And if, and if you can't destigmatize, then you, then you give up on that notion that transformation can really occur. And so I'm, that was true before I got there, so I, I take no credit for it. But I'm very grateful to be a part of a congregation that has figured out a way to bless every opportunity. Um, I don't know what it would feel like if, if it was 50-50, you know, if half the pews were filled with people that were stigmatized. And so I don't want to overstate that, but, but we believe that we can build relationships with people that, that the world would very easily set apart and reject. I'm hopeful in that regard. Just um, quickly... Um... We had a family who um, gave a donation not long ago to build a new pulpit. And um, so I thought, well, you know, we got all, the, all these art, artists in, in Boone, wonderful, wonderfully creative people. Let's, rather than ordering something from somewhere, let's have somebody local design it, use wood, maybe cut off the property and, and create a piece of art. And uh, someone gave me a name of someone I reached out to them. Um, and he said, I'd be glad to talk to you about that, but you need to know that, um, uh, that, that I have a past. And um, this, this is the past. And, um, and so I thought, well, goodness, how am I going to navigate this with our church? <laughs> the minute someone knows this, or knows this guy and this is who built our pulpit. Um, so I asked the family who gave the donation and they said, uh, sure, we you know we we believe God, you know God is God works in amazing ways. And, uh, we're okay with it. And then the more I thought about this, I I told him, and he and I talked about his design, and I said, um, what a what a better um, what better image than to have the gospel of reconciliation proclaimed from a pulpit made by someone who many believe is irredeemable. And yet we proclaim a word that is hopefully more powerful. This is the gospel of Christ. Same thing is that now the the stigma becomes a story. That story will probably resonate with so many different people in that it becomes redeemable for all, for everybody concerned. So I believe that whether it's whatever that stigma is, it becomes a story with which you can relate to people and offer the gospel. The the stigma that my congregation has been dealing with most directly right now is around mental health. Um, And I mentioned that in regards to the homeless population, but really we've been dealing with it within our own membership. Um, 
couple of years ago, we had five suicides in a year. Um, and people weren't talking about that, but we as a staff realized that this was, there were, there were things underlying um, this very well put together, well-dressed congregation. It's one of those places where you put your face on before you go to church. Um, and we had a group of people that just said, you know, we need to be talking about this. We need to be honest about the things that are going on. And it's just been incredible how those stories have, have become points of connection. Um, and things that sound really scary, like uh, bipolar disorder or addiction, uh, suddenly they're out in the open. And it's been, because as a pastor, you, you start to see some of those things when you're around long enough. You hear those stories, you know what's going on. Um, and I, there have been so many times where I'm like, I just wish these people would talk to each other about it. And that's finally starting to happen. Um, and hopefully making it a safer space for, for people wrestling with health to tell their stories. Uh, and I would, I would add, just to try to say something that supplements what's been said. Uh, in Florida, we, United Methodist Church and the AME Church, lobbied the state government year around three bills that we corporately choose together. Last year, one was around civil citations and mass incarceration. And uh, a book like The New Jim Crow was certainly uh, a revelation to me. Uh, and, you know, just to be honest, to be a white male from the South, uh, to lean into a story like that uh, is uh, something that I'm, you know, my, my human nature might be not to want to pick up a big book like that, read it. Uh, because I've benefited from all these systems that it talks about. But I think, Ken, what, the reason I wanted to mention New Jim Crow is uh, that book talks a lot about how stigmas are not accidental uh, and uh, how stigmas get reinforced in law, business, real estate, the workplace. Uh, and then I would just say uh, Sunday I was in Hawthorne, Florida, preaching which is a very small, kind of impoverished town near Gainesville. Great clergywoman serving this church. And uh, she told me that there were four families in the church where a grandson was in prison. Uh, and, you know, just, just I think that the, it is both uh, the lives of, of persons in our churches uh, and, uh, and there is also uh, a justice and I think we try to, try to work on it. Dave? Thank you very much for the conversation this morning and all that you've shared. I'm grateful for your coming early and doing that, Liz. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.